We are going now uh, to turn to Romans chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible and you'd like one, you can put your hand up and we'll get you a Bible so you can read along. Otherwise, it will be on the screen, but I always prefer having it in my hand personally. If you are using a digital version, we are using the ESV. We're going through the book of Romans, kind of section by section, and we are now in chapter 2. Let me read to you God's holy word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, I ask that you may bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite Bible stories, because of its powerful impact, is the story of Nathan confronting David. You've got to go back into Old Testament Israel. King David, the greatest of the kings, has fallen. Toward the end of his life, instead of going out to war, he chose to stay behind in the comfort and safety and security of his palace. At night, he goes to the rooftop, for whatever reason we don't know, when he sees a young woman bathing. Inflamed by lust, he takes that woman and forces her to sleep with him. But she's married to a soldier of the army, Uriah. She falls pregnant. David tries to mop up the mess by, by having, using his power to have Uriah killed in the battle so that no one will know that the baby is really David's. And the text doesn't say that David does anything about this. He doesn't confess it publicly. He doesn't repent. He just moves on with his life. So God sends, in his mercy, God sends a prophet, Nathan, to speak to David. But instead of Nathan coming up and saying, you sinful king, which sometimes the prophets do do, but instead Nathan tells a story. He comes up to King David and he says, there was a man who had a little baby lamb. He loved his lamb. He used to feed the lamb his own food and the lamb used to drink from his own cup and the lamb was a part of the family. They used to take photos with the lamb, with Santa. You know, this lamb was like his own child. He was a poor man and he only had one lamb. But then there was a rich man. He had many flocks and many herds and much wealth and anything he could want. And one day the rich man had a traveler visit with him and he wanted to have a feast. And so he stole the poor man's lamb, had it slaughtered and roasted. And David is incensed at this story. He's the king. He can make judgments. And so he presumably slams his fist on his you know, throne. I don't know what he sat on in anger. And he says, the man who did this deserves to die. 
And Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. In Romans chapter 2, that's what Paul is doing to religious, moral people. Perhaps moralistic Romans or religious Jewish people. In chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, you'll have to flick back over later, he's been saying just how sinful the world is, and particularly the Roman pagan world, with all their messed up sexuality and their, all these lists of sin after sin after sin. And you could imagine the, the religious, moralistic people, probably people like us, at the end of that section going, mm-hmm, yep, amen, yep, the wrath of God is going to come upon those people. They're so terrible. And Paul, in Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 9, looks at us and them and says, you are the man. You see, Romans chapter 1 to 3 teaches us that there's actually three ways to live. You may have heard of an old evangelistic tract, Two Ways to Live, but Tim Keller gives us this insight. There's actually three ways to live because there's two different ways you can reject God. So the first way to live is you follow God and you love God and you, do, um, you, know, you follow Christ and you live by his word. But there's two ways we can reject God. But we only often think of one way. We think of Romans 1, 18 to 32, rebellion. You either living following Christ or rebelling against him. But there's actually a third way. The third way to live is religion where you follow the rules, you come along to religious services, whatever they may be, but ultimately you trust in your performance and what you are doing for your salvation rather than in God and his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is going after in Romans 2, all the way chapter 3, verse 9, to show that even religious people really need the gospel. And so my title for today's message is Beware of Religion. I think that's Paul's message. Because Christianity, you might be shocked to hear this, is not about becoming religious in that sense or resting in your religion, but it's actually about following Jesus Christ. And so today in these short five verses, we're going to see two warnings and then we're going to see a way in which we're meant to respond. And so whether you're a religious person, a moralistic person, you, you think you're a good person, this, this passage is for you. But even if you're a genuine Bible-believing Christian as well, this passage is also for you. It will convict you. It, it's for all of us. So I want to jump now into warning number one from this passage. The first warning is this. Beware of religious judgmentalism. Warning number one, beware of religious judgmentalism. Mainly in verses 19 through to 32 of chapter 1, he's been talking to probably the Gentile world. If you read it, it doesn't really resemble what it would have been like in a Jewish synagogue at the time, or even a lot of Roman moralists and ethicists who followed the Greek uh, philosophies. It wouldn't really have looked like their life. And so in Romans chapter 2, he turns to religious people, people that don't want to live like those people of 19 to 32, good people. And he turns the gun, so to speak, on the good guys or those who think they're good guys. So let's look at verse 1 and 2 again and, and hear the warning. 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Here's Paul's argument simply. If you believe that there's such thing as right and wrong, and if you believe that God judges right and wrong, unless you are perfect, then you too will be judged by God for the wrong things that you have done. And he goes further and he claims that these religious moral people that look down on those people that break the Ten Commandments or whatever ethic they believe in, that they've actually done the same things themselves. And therefore, even though they delude themselves with thinking they're good, they are actually under the judgment that they think other people deserve. And yet they're blind to it. And that's the real deception of religion. It blinds you to your problem. You think you're good, but you're not. How does this work? Well, if you think about the Ten Commandments, and he lists some of the different Ten Commandments in chapter 1, uh, particularly if you look at verse 29 to 31, there's a, there's a list of sins that may be a bit more applicable than some of the early ones. I'll, I'll read it to you briefly. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And Paul's saying in that passage that this is a description of the world that's rejected God. They don't know how to live, and so they just live according to their passions. And God gives them over their passions, and things just go from bad to worse. And then he says, you religious people, you do the very same things. For instance, think about that one there that might have stuck out to you the first time you read it. Disobedient to parents. You're like, oh, there's all these lists of these terrible sins, and then there's disobedient to parents. You're like, come on, that's just being a teenager. But isn't it true that often quiet religious or conservative people often look at the next generation and say things like, I can't believe the kids these days, the way they disrespect authority, the way they disobey their parents, the way it's just wrong. They're not like our generation. But remember back to when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, and conveniently we forget just how disobedient and dishonoring we were. We see with 2020 the sins of the world, but... We're very cautious about applying that same judgment to ourselves. Or if you think of, um, you know, the 10th commandment, do not covet. We look out, maybe as conservative religious people, oh, it, you know, Sydney's so materialistic, people are just living by greed and people are just, you know, spending their money, buying whatever they want, living for now. I can't believe people would do that. But don't we just do very much the same things. Aren't we also coveting often, driving past homes going, I wish I had that home or that car or that job or that spouse. What about in that passage it talked about deceit? We get all up in arms about politicians when they deceive or businesses when they deceive. We see it in the news and we get all riled up and angry. But have we ever deceived someone to make ourselves look better in a work situation or a friendship situation? Have you ever shaded the truth? 
or not included something in your income tax return so that you'd have a bit more money at the end of the year. You see, if we believe that there's such a thing as right and wrong and that those who do wrong deserve the judgment of God, unless we are perfect in all those areas which we think are right and wrong, then Paul's logic is then God's judgment will fall on you. You either have to remove the categories of right and wrong and become a relativist, or you have to admit that you too are not in the right yourself. So which one do you want? And perhaps that's some of you here today. It's nice to go to church. It's a religious-y thing to do. It's, you know, it's quite moral and ethic, although less and less probably seen that way these days. But at least in the past, it used to be seen as a moral and ethic thing to do to go to church or perhaps your temple or perhaps your mosque or perhaps whatever virtuous thing, charity. Maybe you volunteered at a school barbecue, democracy sausage sizzle, and you feel really good about yourself as a result of that. And maybe you looked at some other people that didn't go and you think, I can't believe no one. Why is there only one person doing all these sausages? Where's everyone else and their civic duty helping? What Paul's trying to show us is that we can live, be so inconsistent with our judgments. And that it puts us in a real point of danger. And this is true for me too. I'm a genuine Christian. I love Jesus. I'm not trusting in my own righteousness, but I am judgmental. I struggle with this spirit. And so whether you're not yet a Christian and you're judgmental, or you're a Christian and you're judgmental, this passage is a warning to us both. However, I want to bring up one caveat that I think is necessary to apply to a church um, in our day and age. We are still meant to be judgmental. We're just not meant to be hypocritical judgmentalists. As a church, we are meant to judge those who are inside the church. Um, if you flick over about I don't know, 20 pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see Paul actually commend the church to be judgmental. So we've got to be careful because, you know, do not judge is like one of those things where we're like, oh yeah, we should never judge and just accept everyone's on a journey. Um, no, uh, the church is meant to judge. We're just not meant to judge the outsiders. We're meant to judge the insiders in a way that we separate those who are truly adhering to Christ and those who are not. He says in verse 9 through 11, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to get out of this world. So he's not saying, let's create a cult, let's create a little commune, let's protect ourselves from the world. He's like, no, 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 no. You've got to live in the world and do your job and be a normal citizen. But now I'm writing to you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, for not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from person from among you. Now, that's an intense passage, but I just want to bring it up because it shows that we're not meant to go from one side to the other. Okay, I don't want to be a judgmental person, so we'll never judge. No, no, no. 
We're not meant to be hypocritically judgmental. We're meant to assess ourselves, assess those within the church more than we're assessing those outside the church. We turn the the judgment on ourselves. That's what Paul is doing there. So the first warning is this. Beware of religious judgmentalism. It's a terrible sin and it's a terrible problem and it's so human and so natural and so normal and so deceiving. The second warning Verse 3 to 5, beware of assuming your safety and salvation based on your religiosity. Beware of assuming your safety and salvation based on your religiosity. Look at verse 3 to 5 with me. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. So he's attacking there the presumption. Do, do, you, do you think that just because you're a Jew or you're a virtuous moralistic Roman that you've got the jet, get out of jail free card and that when it comes to your judgment, you're just going to go, well, I'm part of the covenant people. I'm all good. I got the card. Applying it to us now, it could be that You've grown up in church or you made a decision at youth group or you're vaguely religious in some way and you think, well, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I've got some connection to God somewhere in my life. I'll be fine. And Paul's very clearly saying, oh, do not make that assumption. Do not rest in your religiosity. There is no get out of jail free card. Verse 4, he continues, or do you presume... On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What he's saying there is, do you presume that because judgment hasn't happened yet, because you're not experiencing God's wrath now, that you won't in the future? Oh, no, no. Do not be deceived. Do not deceive yourself, Paul is saying. Just because you're not experiencing judgment now or bad things aren't happening to you now is no guarantee that you'll make it through God's judgment on the last day. Instead, the opposite. What God is doing right now is protecting you. In his kindness, he hasn't judged you. In his love, he hasn't poured out that righteous judgment you deserve. And instead, in his kindness, is waiting giving you a chance to repent, giving you a chance to turn from your sins, giving you a chance to come to him in humility. He uses that image in verse 5 that's a really powerful one about storing up wrath. Have a look at verse 5 as he sums up his argument. But because of your hard and impenitent, that means you won't repent, heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's an old illustration from a preacher, Jonathan Edwards, which I shared a couple of weeks ago, that every time we sin, and say use the Ten Commandments as an example, every time we break one of those and we don't experience judgment right then and there, If you know what the Bible actually teaches, if you sin, you're meant to die. The wages of sin is death. So every time you sin and you haven't died, if you're not yet in Christ, what's actually happening is it's not that you got away with it. 
It's been stored up in the future. And it's like water in a dam. And every sin is rising the tide bit by bit. Man, I'm getting attacked by this fly. Bit by bit by bit. And you think, I'm safe. I'm secure. It's going to be okay. But actually, one day, God will pull down the lever and the damn wall will come down and the full fury of God's wrath will come against you. That's what this verse is saying. It's a hard truth. And Paul's trying to say you can't rest in any religiosity, whether it's your Hindu religiosity, your Buddhist religiosity, your Muslim religiosity, or your Christian or Catholic or Orthodox religiosity, or your secular humanist religiosity. In a sense, it's like a religion, this virtuosity that thinks, because I'm good, I will be fine. No, no, no. Do not assume your safety. But again, I want to apply the flip side to it as well. Just if you are a genuine Christian and you're following Christ and you've repented of your sins, this verse doesn't mean that you can't have assurance of your salvation. This verse isn't speaking to Christians who love Christ. This verse is speaking to people who haven't yet trusted in Christ, and perhaps that's some here today. But if you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Christ, you can have full assurance that that dam will never come against you because it's come against someone else in your place already. If you flip to John chapter 6, Jesus makes this point really clear. Before he died on the cross, he was speaking with his believers and disciples after he fed them in the wilderness. And he says this in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37. This is your assurance. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And if that wasn't good enough, he continues, verse 38. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, or you could say no one, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father in heaven, that Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Friend, if you've trusted in Christ, that's your assurance of your eternal security. You will persevere to the end. You will not be lost because the floodgates of God's wrath has been poured upon Jesus. So Paul's given us two warnings. Beware of religious hypocrisy, judgmentalism. Beware of assuming and presuming that you are safe and saved because of your vague religiosity. So what should we do in response? Well, point three, final thing. Be ready to repent. Be ready to repent. Repent. Look at verse 4 again. He says, God's kindness toward the back half of the verse is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance means turning from one way 
and turning to another. It's a change of heart and life. And what he's saying is that God's kindness is meant to lead you now to repentance. If perhaps you're sitting here and you might feel, I'm not sure I'm safe. I'm not 100% sure. Maybe you're feeling like, I know I've sinned against God and I know I'm not as bad as other people, but I do know I actually have broken God's law. What am I meant to do? Well, let's return back to that story with David and Nathan. You see, David was confronted with his sin and he had a choice. What am I going to do? You are the man, Samuel said to him. David could have said, how dare you put him to death? He had the power. But by God's grace and God's mercy, David says this in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12. I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the people of Israel. But I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses his sin. And look at Nathan's response. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. There were consequences in his life, but his sins were forgiven. Let us learn from David's lesson, especially those who are trusting in their religiosity, who haven't yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and said, you are Lord, you are Savior, I rest in you and I live for you. If you haven't yet done that, this is your chance. This is your chance to turn from whatever, even if you think it's a good religious way of life, and turn to Christ, because in him alone is salvation. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18. It's one of my favorite stories. He tells a story of two people that go into the temple to pray. It's on the screen. There's a religious type called a Pharisee. And he goes into the temple to pray, and he, he, his prayer is the prayer of a religious person who hasn't yet repented of their religion. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But he looks around, and he sees this immoral tax collector, and he prays, God, I thank you for who I am. I thank you that I'm good. I thank you that I'm righteous, and I thank you that I'm not like that guy. I give. I tithe. I go above and beyond. Thank you. And then Jesus turns the lens to the tax collector. And the tax collector in those days, just think of the worst person you can think of in our society, and it was that type of person. And the tax collector who had known he was a sinner, he realized he was confronted with his sin. Maybe someone had told him, you're a sinner. Probably every day he got told he was filthy and vile. And instead of hardening his heart, instead of rejecting the call, he comes, makes his way into the temple. And then he bows on his knees. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he he beats his breast. And he calls out the prayer that you need to pray today if you're not yet in Christ. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the beginning of the Christian life. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. 
I have sinned against the Lord, David said. And then Jesus concludes this famous parable, this famous story, and says, to the shock of the crowd, that guy, the one who confessed his sin rather than the one who confessed his righteousness, he went home righteous in God's sight. He went home justified, as if he'd never sinned. Yet the guy who thought he was righteous did not go home right in God's sight. And that's your choice today. You can trust in your religion and your good works and whatever it is that you think is good enough to get you through the gates of heaven. You can go home trusting in that today or you can go home trusting in Jesus for your salvation and you will be declared righteous in God's sight. And if you've already put your trust in Christ, the picture of the tax collector is not something we move on from. As members of a church, we don't go, well, that was where we began, but now we become like this guy. <laughs> now I have been sanctified and I'm getting slowly better and I'm further and further away from that. No, no, we, we realize that actually the, the heartbeat of the Christian life is to remain humble and repentant and constantly recognizing we have fallen short. We don't love God as we ought. We don't love man as we ought. We aren't on mission as we ought. And so we constantly humble ourselves before God and say, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. If you're a religious person, but not a follower of Christ, you must repent. If you're a true Christian who follows Christ, you must remain repentant all of your life. Today is the day. You do not know if you have tomorrow. In God's kindness, you breathe this very moment. You opened your eyes and you found yourself at 27 Iron Street. This is God's kindness to you if you are outside of Christ. Repent. We sang a song, and I'm going to close with this. We sang a song at the beginning of the service, which could be a prayer for you. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray and ask that you would help us to be those humble people. May we trust in you and you alone. If there are any here, Lord, that have never come to you finally for their salvation, would they do it this very moment? Oh, Lord, would you awaken their hearts right now to realize that they are under your very wrath and judgment and they cannot escape. Lord, have more kindness upon them to realize at this very moment God, I plead for their souls. You know who they are. Whether they've been their first time here today or they're even a member of our church, but they know that they haven't yet made Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. Today, would they beat their breast and cry out for mercy, truly for the first time. And for all of us who are religious people, 
Christians, true followers of you, help us to not become hypocrites, O Lord. Help us to not look down on those outside the world. Help us to not be puffed up with an imagination of how righteous we are. But, O Lord, help us to be humble, repentant, and revelers in the mysterious work of your mercy and grace in Christ. We rest in your Son, Jesus, alone as a church this morning. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation. He is our Lord. And we love him and worship him and honor him and glorify him. And Lord, would you fill our lives with following him this week? And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.